Hey folks, welcome to another episode of The Shrink and the Pundit. I'm Jeff Salzman, the pundit, and I'm here today with integral psychotherapist extraordinaire Dr. Keith Witt, the shrink. The Shrink and the Pundit <laughs> is often featured on Integral Life, which is the world's leading integral web portal. I also host it on my site, Daily Evolver, E-V-O-L-V-E-R, dailyevolver.com, which is where I comment on current events from an integral perspective, or die trying. And Dr. Keith's web presence is at Dr. Keith Witt, W-I-T-T, drkeithwitt.com where you can find his School of Love video series and the bite-sized, which I love, these Therapist in the Wild video webcasts, like two, three minutes. Uh, his new book is Integral Mindfulness, From Clueless to Dialed In. It's available on his site and also at Amazon. And welcome, Dr. Keith. How you doing this morning, my brother? Um, happy to talk to you as always. It's a beautiful day in Santa Barbara. Beautiful morning here in Boulder, too. Okay, so today we're going to look at the issue of human memory and trauma and how it works and how to work with it. And you and I have been talking about this, Keith, and I think I'll start by just doing my best to sum up in a paragraph or two what I, I think it is you taught me. So here, here goes. So here's how I put it, that, or here's, here's how I'm thinking about it now is that we human beings are memory machines. A lot of our identity, a lot of our experience of ourselves, our behavior in the world uh, comes out of the often unconscious grooves that have been cut in our psyches via the memories we have and the stories we tell about our lives. I love the term you use, autobiographical narratives that we have. And that these narratives, these grooves, are often cut by some kind of trauma. Uh, whether in our minds or bodies, trauma is big and small, and that the way forward in our own growth and development is to work with these traumas and memories in ways that can liberate us into, you know, they don't call it liberation, you know, bigger, freer states of being who we are in this evolutionary journey. So um, how'd I do? Great. <laughs> Cool. That's it. There's a summary right there. <laughs> Great. Well, then let's start with just unpacking a couple of these terms. Uh, and let's just start okay. with, with trauma and memory. How are you, you know, defining these and working with them, Keith? Okay, so let's start with, with memory. Um, as integralists, we always start with the Big Bang. <laughs> That's right. That's just where everything seems to begin. <laughs> so... Arguably, you can say that the universe is fields, because when the Big Bang came into existence, there's a whole bunch of fields that have been resonating with each other ever since. You could also say that um, the universe is consciousness, because these fields form particles, form uh, all holarchies, and they all have prehension going to apprehension, which is a form of consciousness. You could say the universe is consciousness. You can also um, uh, make a case, as uh, Terrence McKenna did in the 80s, that the universe is language. Because the way that everything keeps self-organizing towards complexity, and, and complexity, the principles of chaos theory, of, of, of the bias towards greater coherence in, in an open system, which we are in, in the universe, is accomplished through communication. 
So you could say that the universe is language. It's just one long conversation that started at the beginning and is continuing. Right. You can also say that the universe is memory. Because in holarchies, you can only go to the, the next moment from the present moment. And the present moment is, is informed by our memories of the past. Right. This is true on the, on the molecular level. You know, fields turn into particles which remember themselves as particles and kind of stay particles forever, as do atoms and molecules and so on, all the way up to all the holarchies. And, you know, they reach certain levels of, of solidity where the memory of who they are, in a way, keeps them in that state, and then they build with others. And as we get into life, life has genetic memory, and then as we get into life with brains there's actual memories, and as we get into life with brains, with social systems, you know, mammals and stuff, we get into collective memories. Um, and these collective memories quite likely exist in morphogenic fields. Um, uh, uh, not just fields of, of life for species, which are essentially the memory of how that species is supposed to be, but, but, but genetic memory of uh, families and of groups and, and so on. And uh, it, even further, as we get into humans, humans, uh, the curse and the blessing of human consciousness is memory. Yeah. The blessing of it is obvious. We can extend uh, throughout, back to our lives, to the, to the end of our lives, um, to the Big Bang and to the end of the universe. The great apes can't go more than about a half hour into the future. We can go forever into the future. In a way, our, our memories of ourselves, the way that we can hold ourselves and the way that we build on our memories of ourselves is what creates us. And, and, and of course, that's intimately tied in um, to language and to the capacity for language that, that seemed to hit with an avalanche with the Fox P2 mutation 20 right. years ago. So, so we, we, but that's the blessing, but the curse is that we have habits of being that become habitual memories, and also we can anticipate how we're going to be in the future, and it's the same circuitry. You know, if I, re if I anticipate having a good time tomorrow, that actually becomes a memory, and now I'm remembering the good time that I'm going to have tomorrow. If, if, I'm gonna, <laughs> if I anticipate a bad time tomorrow, um, then um, I have now have a memory of a bad time tomorrow, which now I'm also remembering. Um, and so be because human development is imperfect, as we grow, and because we're also wildly different, as we grow, we build up positive and negative sets of memories that actually become us, become our sense of self. In our right hemisphere, we have multiple autobiographical narratives of, of stories of our life that are better or worse. Even more, the brain has two major modes of being. One, when we're intentionally doing something, a, a bunch of circuits get lit up. But then, when we're not potentially, we're not doing anything particular, we have what's called the default mode, which we spend 15 to 20% of our waking hours in. We're daydreaming and so on, where the brain naturally falls back into reverie. And those reveries, those habitual reveries, can be better or worse depending upon how we hold our memories. And if we're depressed, then we're going to be going to depressed memories or anxious memories if we're anxious or angry memories if we're angry or shameful memories if we're ashamed. Even worse than that, 
um, because the, the brain is biased to solve problems. When we go to the default mode, we'll go into those states, create problems involving those states, and then in our reverie try to solve them, which is actually creating new memories involving shame and anxiety and depression um, and uh, <laughs> uh, rage, perhaps. N- not only that, as we do that, as we follow those, those reveries, we might have a pessimistic explanatory style or an optimistic explanatory style of the future. If it's pessimistic, we'll be uh, uh, predicting negative things happening in the future, generating negative reveries, which become memories, which then self-reinforce uh, themselves. Uh, and so we have the default mode, and then we have the attentional mode. And then there's another thing that we have, which call, is called attractor states. When certain kinds of stimuli happen, we will automatically associate certain kinds of memories and impulses associated with those. Um, this is similar to working memory, like when you're talking to someone about something, your brain gives you data about whatever you're talking about. Like my brain's giving me data about memory right now. That's not a conscious process. And so these attractor states are where we naturally go, which can be more positive or more negative. Here's my favorite current example of an attractor state. Um, cool. Genetic researchers have determined, they go back and they're trying to figure out the history of humanity by following genomes. And generally, if somebody was born around 1000 AD, they have about, I don't know, 12 to 1800 descendants if they have children. Well, researchers found that there was somebody around 1000 AD that had tens of thousands of descendants in the present day. Who is this guy? It was a guy. Mm-hmm. So they've been tracking it down, and they're beginning to figure out that it was Genghis Khan. Wow. <laughs> Genghis Khan apparently had an attractor state. When he saw an attractive woman, he wanted her. And because he was Genghis Khan and had a consciousness of, you know, I'm Genghis Khan, I get whatever I want, he apparently had sex with hundreds of women. And so Genghis Khan is completely overrepresented in the genome of today <laughs> because he had this attractor state of going after women when right. he saw them and then claiming them. Well, this explains everything. <laughs> so, and so when we, as we're developing, we'll have big traumas and little traumas. Everybody knows about big traumas, you know, like car wrecks and accidents and assaults and rapes and, you know, that kind of stuff. But what we've discovered in terms of our sense of self, our sense of self is informed as much and even more so, if, if particularly our distress self, by little traumas. You know, little humiliations, little senses of who we are. Mm-hmm. And not only that, in that default mode that 15 to 20% of the time we spend in reverie, um, the guy who came up with the term default mode, Mark, Marcus Rachel in 2001, he believes that our sense of self is in that default mode. That as we, as we just drop into that place, that's who we identify ourselves as being, because that's just where we automatically go. Now, this is great if we feel like a good person who's moving forward into a positive life. It's awful if we're depressed, right. because then we, when we're not doing anything else, we're depressed, or if we're highly anxious. And then since we want to, in the default mode, the brain also gives us problems, uh, about 60% of the places we go in the default mode is problems to solve, and about 40% of those are, are interactions with people, social things. So if our default mode is generating problems that are consistent with anxiety and depression and rage and shame, then we're creating more memories out of that that are self-reinforcing, 
which are devastating. This leads to people going crazy and committing suicide and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so somebody has pain like that, and they come and see a therapist. And the therapist is confronted with this person having an habitual way of being that involves them perhaps being worthless or them being shameful or them being enraged or them being depressed. This self-reinforced, built on series of memories throughout their whole life. They have autobiographical narratives that have somewhat been contaminated by these distressing things. And then the therapist is go, is goes to themselves, okay, now what do I do? <laughs> and that's how we deal, you know, in that, from that conceptual place, we want to help people change their default modes to be more positive, their explanatory styles to be more optimistic rather than pessimistic, there are attractor states to be attractor states that they manage rather than they indulge. You know, if you indulge in an attractor state of, say, food, alcohol, sex, anything, it can turn into a compulsion. If you indulge anxious thoughts, if that becomes an attractor state, you know, that becomes obsessions. And so we want to help people manage their memories of themselves in the past, present, and future, and in relationship to become more healthy, you know, more oriented to reality and more positive in terms of moving forward in their lives. And we're coming up with a lot of interesting uh, research that shows what parts of the brain and what kinds of relationships affect this and mm -hmm. how we can influence those brain uh, areas and how we can influence those relationships to help people grow and resolve the distressing issues that are locked into these, these many memory systems, implicit, explicit, all that stuff. Okay, so uh, I would guess that most of the people listening here are in some state of distress in some aspect of their life. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're, I, I think at the stage of development that most of the people listening to this are, uh, we actually have pretty good capacity of self-observation. And to, you know, yes. as, as we say in development, make subject object. So this thing that I thought was just this suffering Jeff turns out to be something I can witness and view. And I can see the various machinations of what's healthy and unhealthy in myself as an object, as a, as a third person. And this is, you know, basically the engine of development itself. And so what can you... You know, what, what do you have to say about how we work with this or what's new about how to work with this um, at these higher stages of development? Exactly. Self-observation, um, particularly compassionate self-observation. Yeah. Um, Just as an inter quick, interject almost... and quick interjection about that, the compassionate and, and positive um, stories is... I remember reading about positive psychology. I think it's Martin Seligman, or whatever his name is, the psychologist yeah. who did all of that. And, and it was an interview with him, and he said, was talking that there are you know, many ways to happiness, but there's one sure-fired way to unhappiness, and that is self-focused rumination. I'll never forget that term. And I just thought <laughs> that is so true, self-focused rumination, just that running over and over again in our mind, the, our latest humiliation or, you know, whatever. So anyway, I just wanted to say that. It's, it's, yeah, it's basically practicing shame. Yeah. You, you mentioned Seligman. Seligman started his work, study, learn depression. He hmm. took a bunch of dogs and, and turned them into depressed dogs. Oh, how was, awful. You know, with electric shocks, oh. which is awful. 
So maybe he felt shame about that or whatever. Maybe. <laughs> so uh, one day he was out in his garden, and his, his five-year-old daughter came out and was throwing dirt quads, and he got pissed at her, and she looked at him, and she said, Daddy, you know, you're pretty grumpy. You know, I've learned to stop sucking my thumb, turning my blanket around all the time. Why don't you learn how to not be so grumpy? <laughs> and Martin Seligman kind of was struck by Sunderland. He says, God, I think I'm going to study happiness now. And so he became Mr. Positive Psychology after that and started organizing everybody to, to start researching what actually went into happiness. Yeah. And one thing that they found is about 40% of, of the variance in happiness is stuff that we can control. And that 40% is where we go in psychotherapy. And to answer your question about self-observation, self-observation is, is, is definitely beneficial. But as it turns out, self-observation isn't enough to deal with certain issues. For instance, we just, we've discovered a couple of, of things that really change um, positively uh, negative senses of self, negative, the rumination that you described. One of them is an intimate relationship with another person where one of the focuses of that relationship is self-soothing. Hmm. Um, in, one, in one study where a bunch of adolescent girls who had horrible issues, they had, an intimate, they had, uh, they, they had therapy. And a lot, most of them had good alliances with their therapists. But the ones that actually improved had alliances that had a focus on self-soothing. So emotional self-soothing, emotional self-regulation as a focus plus intimacy seems to help people grow. Hmm. Okay, so there's that added component. It's compassionate self-observation, and it's also relationships where there is a focus on self-soothing, emotional hmm. self-regulation. So that's so interesting. That's, that's so one so area. I, I think of an, in my intimate relationship and self-soothing. So how you talk about soothing each other, um, you know, talking mm -hmm. to the other person. Um, is that what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so say, it's almost so mutual say you soothing. Tell me, yeah. Well, say you and I are, so you tell me about you have, uh, you had a fight with somebody. Mm -hmm. now, you and your friend had a big fight. He wanted to go south. You wanted to go north. You thought he was full of shit. He thought you were full of shit. And you're telling me about it. And you're pissed about it. Right. And so I go, okay, you know, so here's just not self-soothing. I'm very empathic. Oh, yeah. You, boy, you had a big argument. Wow, that guy was a real asshole. Yeah, I'd be pissed off too. You know, I'd be, fuck him. You know, now I'm not focusing <laughs> on self-soothing here. I'm focusing on getting more jacked up. Right. Okay, well, you're feeling empathized with and We're having a good empathic conversation, but... It's not really doing anything for you in terms of how you get jacked up and get pissed off at your friend when he wants to go south and you want to go north. Well, it's reifying my but anger and my sense of self. Yeah, you, we can observe it, but I'm, I'm kind of jacking it up. Yeah, exactly. Which, which say, yeah, by I the way, understand. Keith, you know, when, when we complain about our friends to other friends, oftentimes that's just what we're after is to get, you know, reified and agreed with and jacked up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we want somebody to support our angry yeah. belief about what a jerk that person was and how they treated me badly and how I'm the good guy and they're the bad guy. Exactly. Well, which feels good to be mirrored like that. But if you add to that, so yeah, I can understand how you'd be angry about that. And, you know, probably this person has some reasons to go south. And, you know, you don't have to be this pissed off to disagree. Right. You go, yeah, you're probably right. 
all of a sudden the emphasis now is on empathy plus self-soothing. You're now down-regulating that anger and having more compassionate perspectives. That added element of self-soothing, which comes from compassionate understanding, that's a, a healing component that apparently is central in psychological healing. Um, and so relationships where there is some agenda of compassion and understanding of mm-hmm. emotional self-regulation, you see, that amplifies it. The other one is actually working with memories. Um, I am really interested in the new neuroscience about this. Um, mm-hmm. The people that are doing the research are Bessel van der Kolk in his trauma center in Boston and a woman named Ruth Lanius in London, Toronto, London, Ontario. Um, and they, they put people in the, in the, they've been looking at what happens in brains during default mode in traumatized and non-traumatized people. And they've been looking at what happens in brains when people are having um, a reenactment of a traumatic experience. And when people have a, a reenactment of a traumatic experience, two areas of their brain shut down. The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex in the, in the frontal lobe shuts down, which is associated, among other things, with a sense of time, hmm. of past, present, and future. And so someone in an extreme fear state or rage state or depression, a deep depression, um, they have this sense that it's timeless that they're going to be in it forever, which is horrifying. They lose their perspective that it's just a state that's going to change because the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is shut down in extreme states of distress. Similarly, there's the thalamus, which is in the center of the brain, two um, walnut-sized organs in the center of of the brain, which is associated with taking experience and weaving it together into a story, into a narrative. That gets shut down. And so you can have a traumatic memory and you can remember the flash of the car wreck and smell the, the rubber and hear the screams and all that other stuff, but it's not put into any kind of coherent narrative that makes sense in your life because the part of your brain that does that is shut down. That's the thalamus. And so in therapy, when we're connected with someone and we're dealing with trauma and there's big traumas like car wrecks and even little traumas like petty humiliations when you were a kid and so on, you want to activate the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and the thalamus. And the big question, of course, is how do you do that? Well, there's certain techniques that we've discovered that keep those areas activated while you're dealing with whatever the trauma is. Hmm. And when that happens, the brain is biased to change the memories to make them more um, integrated, more coherent, which is generally more positive. Because remember, all the stories of our lives right now are all alive. They're all changing as we speak. You know, every time we shift a developmental level, we go from orange to, to, uh, to, to green, all the memories of our life have to be reorganized according to our new green worldview. Mm-hmm. The stories of our life changes. And so all those memories get, not all of them, but a bunch of those memories get uh, um, reconsolidated, uh, reorganized. Trauma memories resist reconsolidation because when we go into them, those parts of the brain that help with reconsolidation shut down. Um, You know, back in 1897, Freud and Brewer wrote a paper saying that they noticed that people who had suffered from trauma couldn't tell the story initially, which is still true to this day. You ask somebody who just had a trauma to to tell the story, they'll just talk about images and flashes and feelings. They, They won't have a coherent narrative. 
So Freud thought, and this was the belief of psychotherapy for 100 years, if you could just get to the point where you could tell a story from beginning to end, that you'd be healed. Well, sometimes that works, but more often than not, it doesn't, because you can learn to tell the story, but still keep the traumatic distress dissociated. You know, how do you get that reintegrated? Well, enter several new techniques that are being used. One is, the, the larger one is what's called dual focus. Dual focus is you and I are connected in the present moment, and then, and then I ask you to remember whatever the traumatic memory is. And the, the memory, if it's a little trauma, might be, well, my mom forgot to pick me up at school, and I, sat, I stood there in the dark for a half hour when I was eight years old. That might be a traumatic memory. Yeah. Or I was alone in my room, and I was so unhappy, and nobody came to me, and I felt so alone. Or it might be the assault or the, the, the wreck or the rape or the, or the beating or that kind of stuff. It can be any of those things. Uh, Francine Shapiro, the woman who developed EMDR, calls them big T traumas and little T traumas and says that in her experience, people are more injured by little T traumas hmm. um, in their lives. And so, so, that tr- so if you and I are present, and then you can go back and, and, and feel some of the feelings. And not only the feelings, the beliefs about yourself that were generated from that trauma while you're connected to me in our, in our relationships, which is, a, which is a high self-esteem relationship because, you know, you're, I'm mirroring my, my pleasure at you, my appreciation of you, and you're feeling worthwhile. Yes. See, that dual focus of you feeling worthwhile while viscerally connected to that time where you were hurt and didn't feel worthwhile gives your brain an opportunity to reconsolidate that memory. When those two parts of your brain are connected, you know, the, the old belief that I'm not good with the distressed memory and the new experience of I am good um, that disconfirms that previous one, that memory can get reconsolidated. And there's a whole form of therapy called coherence therapy developed by a guy named Bruce Eckers. This is based on doing that over and over again. Um, finding out the memory, finding the visceral experiences, finding a disconfirming current experience, sometimes in therapy, sometimes else, juxtaposing those inside and having people practice that again and again and again. And they found that when people do that, it accelerates the reconsolidation of the memories and people start feeling better about themselves. Hmm. So we can do this, and we can do this in our lives with, with or without a therapist, I'm assuming, if we have good, oh, yeah. a good friendship or our intimate partner, and we just make this a conscious practice in a way to hear each other's stories uh, in, in a way that is soothing and not jacking it up. That's, a, that's sort, yeah. of a, a sort of a royal road there, uh, just in, in, in our relationships. It's kind of exciting. Well, yeah, you, you know, you hit the nail on the head that if we have a principle that guides how we think, how we relate, and that principle based on, from, all, from data from all four quadrants, from what we know about horizontal and vertical health, we can then organize our relating and organize not just with our, each other, but with ourselves. We can organize it to maximize development and growth. Mm-hmm. And so this is why self-observation by itself this is a point that I made in Integral Mindfulness. Compassionate self-observation by itself is, is, is a positive healing thing, but it's not enough yeah. because there's so many moving parts. We need to have compassionate self-observation with some understanding of what's a better and worse way to think, feel, relate, act, and, and so on. And 
a better, more healthy and less healthy ways of doing that, we have now data from forever telling us what are more or less healthy ways, and that's an integrally informed uh, mindfulness. Yeah. Uh, somebody told me recently that the amount of knowledge in the world has doubled since 2011. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's accurate. I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know if that's accurate or not. <laughs> yeah, but I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So, and so what you, the, what you hitting the nail on the head is, okay, now when we're relating, we have principles of how you and I can relate that, so we're talking about our friend, you know, Joe, who we think he's a dick. So you go, ah, Joe, you're acting a dick, he's trash. I go, yeah, Joe's a dick. Okay, so now we're kind of reinforcing Joe being a dick. Okay, well, now we have this understanding, we kind of don't want to reinforce that. Right. So then I go, well, you know, but Joe's kind of a distressed guy, and he does some generous things. You go, that's true. Joe's a more complex person. We can't reduce Joe to dickishness because he's complex, but that, that one aspect of him is a little bit distressing. But then there's these other aspects. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, you and I are taking a more compassionate perspective. We're simultaneously self-soothing our anger at, at Joe while, while expanding our compassionate understanding and giving ourselves more options, which is in, in neuroscience called response flexibility, and how to deal with him in different situations that can protect us from his dickishness and also help him be a better guy. Yeah. Okay. We have that principle that guides us. Yeah. So we, we can do that in terms of how we think. How, you know, if I, in my default mode goes to, say, a pessimistic explanatory style. So if I think about next year, I think, huh, next year, I'll probably be injured and sick next year, and, you know, the, 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 um, you know, somehow some horrible thing will happen, and, you know, a meteor will come and wreck my house. Wow, that's pretty bad. I've just created a horrible set of memories of the future. I go, oh, Keith, you're going into your pessimistic explanatory style. Let's do an optimistic explanatory style. You're likely to be pretty happy, you know, sitting in a sunny room, having a pretty good time a year from now, because that's kind of the most likely thing to be happening. Yeah. So I, if I can adjust my default mode again and again yeah. and again Just and, as again, a practice. and again, yeah. No, it's, it's powerful. And, and that's what I, self-awareness. What, what, I, what I love about it, too, is that if I think about what you talked about, about how we, you and I talk about Joe, you know, and how we actually mm -hmm. work, work that conversation in a conscious way, it's nothing new in a sense that there have always been wise people in our lives. Maybe it's a grandparent or, a, you know, great aunt. You generally think of them being some older, you know, um, sage or uh, in a family or something. But that's what they do. Yeah, you're my age. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, there are people in this world that we just know that if it's really serious and we really have the opportunity, they're the people we want to talk to because they're doing exactly what you're talking about. And it's just, you know, what good, wise people have always done. We just do this more consciously, more often. And those exemplars are stored in our brains, in our consciousness as memories. Yeah. For it, this is, you know, this is Ken. Okay, I have thousands of hours of Ken Wilbur in Keith's memory. And so if I ask myself almost any question about the universe, <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, quadrants, levels, blind states, and types start giving me answers about, this is the power of the, of the integral epistemology. You know, it organizes your own implicit understanding, which is vast, yeah. you know, our our right hemisphere holds incredible resources of wisdom and understanding and intuitive knowledge. 
Well, once you've internalized the integral operating system, that comes up in the form of understanding the world in terms of quadrants, levels, lines, states, and types. Uh, you know, you, we were talking about God last time, how Ken was saying how, that we can, how integralists are coming back to understanding God. Yeah. And my response to that is, you can't really exist fully in all four quadrants and not believe in God. Yeah. You know, you, you have to have some kind of quadrant yeah. absolutism to not believe in God. Yeah. No, I love what you were talking about earlier with just the fields of the universe. We always start with the Big Bang, as you said. And the cosmos, just the, the architecture of the cosmos is, and this is just basic quadrant theory, is it, it, it arose from the first moment in first person, second person, and third person. And the, you know, the third person is the stuff, the matter, the you know, atoms, the molecules, the cells, the, all that good stuff. But the first person is the universe was aware from the first moment in first person. And that we are the, you know, current culmination of complexity of awareness, each of us. And, yeah. and then we are together in second person, humanity, and maybe more in the universal, you know, ecosystem. We're partaking of second person. And the second person, you know, it arises as morphogenic fields, as you say, that there's just sort of a a shared memory. And I'd actually, actually, Keith, if I could just pause for a second and, and ask you to help us understand that morphogenic field, this sort of second person shared consciousness that we have, how to recognize it, how to work with it. What can you tell us? Uh, well, first of all, you know, when you were just talking, I'm having tingles go through my body. <laughs> I just can't hear that without just getting all tingly. I'm all tingly right now. <laughs> Me too. Um, what fun. So, so, as you know, Ken has taught us, every energy body has a physical body, and the physical body has an energy body, and they all came into existence at the same time. Um, and there's some evidence that it's called the Higgs boson field that has been discovered, that there is a field that has some kind of quality to it out of which everything is always arising um, and that gives things mass. Uh, um, now, this is, this is not just one field. I mean, I'm using the singular. But it, what it, it, it tells us is that there are multiple, multiple, multiple field effects. Basically, everything around us is just fields interacting with fields. Um, these fields have uh, uh, self-organized in some kind of coherent way. And there's some evidence, and Sheldrake's talked a lot about, Rupert Sheldrake's has talked about this, that there's, there's fields that species generate. Um, the, there's a, a, the Hellinger work uh, has is in families. We'll, we'll get a bunch of people and and have somebody come up and be the and, and invite a lot of other people to be family members and 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 ancestors. And the field of that person's family will come into the room. People will have memories while they're pretending to be the grandfather that only the grandfather could have. Yeah. Um, this is extraordinary. And anybody who's seen the Hellinger work goes, God, how does that happen? Well, these fields are invoked in, a, in particular kinds of ways. They're evoked in relationship with each other, and also they're invoked with our personal intent. Um, so they don't just teach us how to grow physically. There are fields of, of knowledge and of wisdom. Um, Margarita uh, Latsky wrote about this, that 
that if you, this is where flashes of insight come. People will study an area, despair, study an area, despair, study an area, and then in a moment when their left hemisphere is turned off, they're tired, they're drunk, they're in the, tire, they're in the shower or something, all of a sudden there's a flash of insight. Um, Mozart used to say that his concertos would come to him all at once in a round volume yeah. of sound. And, and anybody that's ever had a download has that experience. Now, I'm interested in the method of action. How does, it, how does this data get into our systems? Well, there's, there's a guy named Marlon Cage who taught physics. He said that the DNA, the shape, the double helix, actually is a perfect shape for the transmission of energy. If you take the absolute best radio transmitters that we have, you know, the most powerful ones, they're in the shape of, of DNA. And he thinks that the humans, that human DNA broadcasts chi into the world from our, from our living, starting from the moment that we're conceived. You know, the moment an egg is fertilized, there's an electromagnetic field that, that comes into existence that stays for the life of that organism. That's true for everything. So he thinks that, that chi, now he thinks that, that energy from, from the various fields is so high frequency it can't be perceived. He, see, he thinks that that energy um, comes, meets the energy of key that we're putting out, and goes through a series of 12 transformations where um, it becomes less high frequency until it can be absorbed into our bodies. How is it absorbed? All of our, of our organs are embedded in connective tissue. That connective tissue is composed of collagen fibers and structured water that's polarized. Um, and then sugar protein molecules. Those layers um, transmit subatomic particles at the speed of light, 186,300 uh, feet per second. They act like semiconductors. And there's some evidence that acupuncture points are like keys on uh, a keyboard, uh, that you stimulate a certain acupuncture point, different kinds of information goes into the system. Um, and that the meridians are microtubules that, that go along this ground regulation system through the body. And so his belief is that the DNA pushes out key energy. Energy from all these fields comes in and is stepped down. It's absorbed through this ground regulation system into the body and then, and then travels from the ground regulation system at the speed of light into the nervous system, the nervous system where impulses go 150 to 400 uh, feet per second. And then come into people in the form of intuition, in the form of images and, and textures and so on. And most people who've had intuitive flashes, including Einstein, said it came to me as an image or as a sensation, something that came up from the body, usually the right hemisphere. Um, and I think that this is how the morphogenic fields communicate to us. And I think that if we send our intention specifically in a particular area, we tend to harmonize with that particular field yeah. And then at certain moments, a download comes from that field. That's certainly where all my books have come from. Yeah. Ken talks about this in, in, in terms of creativity, that one of the first state, uh, steps of, cre of the creative process is to just put out what you want and ask the question that yeah. you're trying to solve and do it in words. And what you're saying is that that actually activates something in this morphogenic field of collective consciousness that answers us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and you, uh, you can uh, go further uh, even and see this as being a loving 
personality. I mean, if we're going to go, just like you said, I mean, if we're, we're really going to live an integral life, we have to take this built-in second-person nature of the cosmos seriously and see that the cosmos sees us and loves us, you know, that yes. personally. And Though there's also a dark side, Jeff. Really? I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, please, what's the dark but side? But there's a dark side. If I put my energy out into violence, yeah. there are fields of violence. Mm-hmm. If I put my energy out into, into despair, there are fields of despair. Yeah. Um, and so you, I think some, there's a good chance that a lot of times suicide attempts come from there's been a download from a field of despair into a depressed perspective, yeah. and bam, you know, better just kill yeah. myself. Yeah, so we need to cast and out those. General, we need to cast out those demons. Yeah, yeah, and in a way, go deeper because yeah. all that stuff is based on lies. Um, you know, it's 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 you go. The deeper truth is always coherence. The deeper truth is always is always unity. Is always love. Yeah, and so those are those are distortions. Uh, yeah. um, just like uh, you know, the Nazis were a distortion of ethnocentrism. Uh, but if you go deeper, deeper, deeper into healthy ethnocentrism, you find love. Yeah. Um, and so part of discerning, part of development is discerning, once again, the healthy from the unhealthy and continually choosing the healthy. Discerning, discerning the truth from the lie. Yeah. And this is in psychotherapy, it's such a big deal because people often, even honorable, ethical, virtuous people, will feel very comfortable lying to themselves about themselves. You know, they'll be really nice to other people and feel like it's okay to be mean to themselves. Yeah. They'll be really for other people taking care of themselves, but think it's acceptable for them to be self-punitive or self-neglectful. Oh, I know. Um, I mean, I often think if we treated other people the way, or said things to other people that we say to ourselves, you know, they'd call the cops. (laughs) (laughs) Hang on a second, Keith. I I have a barking dog. I'll be right back. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so i'm back i i just had this image of a 911 car <laughs> yeah you gotta come to my house keith just told me i'm a worthless piece of shit and i deserve to die exactly i, I feel really in danger you know come help me <laughs> exactly no kidding well it does it, it really i mean one of the things when i think of how i'm growing and what is new for me in, in this arena. It's just basically taking all of this more seriously, just getting basically a deeper insight into it. And it, it, it's like one yeah. of the things that Ken was talking about, I think at the What Next conference or the last living room or whenever it was, that thoughts are things. And this is, you know, what you're talking about here with this morphogenic field. When we have any thought we have, it's going to go one way or the other into, you know, either the, the, the sort of dark or light. And we can... Con- and in a- Go on. Keep going. Well, and I was also going to say that... And we can what? Conversations are things. That every conversation we have is an opportunity to either raise the vibration or lower the vibration. Every thought we think. You know, every interaction we have. And that we start taking this seriously that, you know, we're not just screwing around here. We're actually creating, you know, the structures and grooves of the cosmos uh, as a whole, but certainly our own interior cosmos and our own happiness. And that's what's sort of new for me, is just, you know, taking it more seriously, I guess. You have an obligation to interrupt yourself 
when you are in destructive to Jeff mode. Yes. Not just to you, but to the universe. Yes. You have an obligation. Yeah, if it was just right. me, I wouldn't care. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm a good whipping boy, you know. I mean, I, I, I have a lot of practice at it. Don't we all? I mean, isn't Aww. it? I mean, aren't we waking up out of this, you know, sort of nightmare of self-loathing? <laughs> I mean, you talk about shame. <laughs> yes. You know, it's, it's just so fundamental to the human condition. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, I wrote, I wrote The Gift of Shame because it's so misunderstood. You know, when we avoid it, when we don't look for the truth that's deeper in it, we strengthen it, and yeah. we block ourselves off from our wisdom. You know, one thing that Ken did, that I learned from Ken that changed my life, was having an evolutionary understanding, and we have a chance to lay down tracks for the people that follow us. Yeah that we have a chance to, to be part of the creative advance into novelty, each one of us. Yep. And we do that not just in terms of what we write and do and teach and say, but in terms of how we feel about ourselves. And like you said, in terms of every conversation that we have. Um, and in psychotherapy, that's particularly fascinating to me because we, our past keeps coming up, and, and both our positive and our distressing past, and, the, and we need to have protocols of dealing with the distress, because if we don't, then we end up dissociating from it, which loses, uh, we lose power when we cut ourselves off and connectivity, or, for, or strengthening it and being distracted by it. There's so, many, so much human consciousness on this planet right now is distracted by trauma, is distracted by distress. Yeah. It's, not, it's not part of that. And, and you'll notice... I, I, I've been mentioning this to, 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 to people like you that I talk to. There's a kind of tribe of people that, are, that know each other. We know each other when we talk to each other. I can talk to somebody from Bulgaria or China or something, and all of a sudden, oh, yeah, I got it. We're, we're, we're one of those people. It's the second tier. Yeah. The second tier has a certain qualitative feel about it. And it's not like there isn't any first tier there. But the, a lot of the first tier are, are objects of awareness, and there's this kind of organizing principle of I have a responsibility to kind of work towards my own coherence, to connect with you in an authentic way, and to contribute to the evolutionary process. Yeah, um, and that is and the it's, organizing. It's interesting to me. Yeah, me too. And and you're saying that that is the organizing. You you said each stage stage has a new organizing principle around these memories and traumas. And um, yes. and so the second tier, the integral stage, is about what you just said, which is you know bringing a consciousness and an intentionality to the process, because we we actually do realize that we are co-creators with emergence itself of our lives and of the cosmos, right? Yeah. So the the people the people where I get my a lot of my uh, uh, the attachment researchers the um, the memory people, the neuroscientists, they do a lot of studying of really hurt people, distressed people, PTSD people, borderline personality disorder, that kind of stuff. You know, for instance, a depressed person, if you look at their default mode, their brain is just gone. Wow. It's just deactivated. So the default mode of a depressed person is nothingness. So you, ask, you ask a depressed person, who are you? They go, I'm nothing. That's what their brain feels like. Um, it, 
And so all their emphasis is to bring those people to a point where they can be alive in the world, where, as Freud said, they, where you can love and work, which is kind of some of the one of the few words that Freud ever wrote about health. You know, Freud was a very pathology-oriented guy. But to me, that ability to love and work is just, that's the, that's the starting point. Yeah. You know, okay, now we're at the foundation. What do we do after? If people who have the ability to love and work, what do they end up wanting to do? Well, they want to grow. They want to expand horizontally and vertically. And eventually, if you continue to grow, you want to serve the evolutionary impulse. Yeah. You want to make a, the world a better place. Um, you, almost everybody, when they hear somebody say, I want to make the world a better place, lightens up and feels good. Yeah. And we particularly love it from a teenager, a kid or a teenager. Because inside us, we all want to support the, the development of humanity. And we know intuitively that when there's a child or when there's a teenager saying, I want to make the world a better place, that that person is going to be a positive contributor to everybody. Yeah. And it just gives us tingles when we see that. Yeah, it does, And so indeed. that's the starting place. Yeah, and to, um, yeah, I, uh, and you know, just carry it into conversations. And really, in a way, every moment is an opportunity to just raise the vibration a little bit. Yeah. You know. And then when you go to, if you have an attractor state that's a negative one, you can kind of view it with compassion and amusement. Yeah. You know, if somebody's, you know, acting really badly and I have some, I have an impulse to say something really nasty, I can go, there you go, Keith. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's that part of you. And, you know, I, I tell that part of me, I understand that you want to, you know, be really mean, but you're, you know, I'm not going to let you be mean, but I certainly understand the impulse. Right. Okay. There, there's, there's a compassionate self-observation with a sense of directionality. You know, so I know what to do. I need to de-escalate the distress. I need to manage the situation for the highest good. And like you said, not to do that, not just with other people, but to, but to do it when you're by yourself. Yeah. To do it when you're playing with your dog. Yeah. Because all of that contributes to these fields that inform all of us and that we inform. Well, I've just had the most extraordinary thing happen to my dog. And that is, um, I dog sit this wonderful French bulldog. He's a real, I always think he has the heart of a collie and the brain of a German shepherd in this little bulldog body. <laughs> He's just a great dog. And he wants to go when I leave with me. And, you know, and when I put my coat on and get the keys, he'd get all crazy and jump and run. And, it, and I, I'd always be back, Charlie, sit down back and, you know, and sort of hold the, him with my leg as I left the door and slammed the door. And, you know, it was always an unpleasant thing for both of us. And recently, I've just taken to explaining to him what's happening in human English. And I'll say, Charlie, I need you to stay here and guard the house. You have to get on your post and you have to keep an eye out for things and just bark and make sure that everything stays okay while I'm gone. I'll be back in about an hour, okay? And I look at him and I talk to him just that way. And he looks at me back and it has changed everything. I mean, he is, he gets it. I, I, I know he doesn't get it literally, but he gets it. And it's just what I'm realizing, just how responsive the cosmos is to us. I always think of the line from the Bible that if you take one step towards God, God will come back at you 70 times seven steps back towards you. You know, and that's another thing we can do here, Keith, too, is we talk about, you know, what is the actual practice of believing in God in a post-mythic way? 
And, you know, for me, it's remembering to pray occasionally, which is, is, is bizarre because as powerful as I've known it to be in my life, um, to actually, you know, pray to a God that I don't understand and say, you know, God, I have no idea who you are, but can you help me here? And can you just make me a better person? And can you, you know, give me the capacity to deal with this or show me some wisdom? I get it. I, I, I'm, that's responded to in ways that are astonishing to me. And I, you know, the only thing I can say is, gosh, why don't I do it more? Um, because, you know, I'm still in these old, you know, grooves of, you know, rather than do something like that, why don't I just, you know, do some self-focused rumination for a while so I can feel bad? <laughs> Memories, default mode. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's turning a battleship, man. It's like you, you, you turn the wheel and two miles later something happens. Anyway, well, Keith, but something happens, <laughs> but something happens. Yay. Yeah. So, you know, thanks, man. You're um, you always really help me to and I think all of our listeners to just, you know, live in this new territory. And, and as you said, we kind of can't help but grow where, um, you know, we can kind of go mm -hmm. dead or numb. But if we're going to, you know, be co-creators of, of our lives, we want to, you know, feel that procreant urge that is in all of us all the time and, you know, steer the ship a little bit. And um, so anything yeah. else you want to say about the topic at hand uh, before we close her up? What are you thinking? The, the one thing about it uh, is that as we move through life, there's, there's an interface. I've been, I work with a lot of um, practitioners. And there's an interface between how we can we can always imagine ourselves more enlightened and more clear than we are, because the body and the brain change at a, at a particular rate. We hold on to memories and habits. Uh, uh, the brain doesn't give up anything that it's associated with with um, survival. And so we can always, um, in our practice, we can see ourselves. So that interface between being able to see ourselves better at who we are is a critical interface. And in that interface, we need to, to, one, really focus on a lot of compassion and acceptance of who we are, while, two, um, noticing the healthy and unhealthy um, thoughts, feelings, activities, and choosing more and more of the healthy ones. And three, having a sense of surrender to this living process of us growing. Because we're actually growing towards being more one with God, but we're never really, I don't think, going to be as one with God as we can imagine because we're embodied. Right. And we're the sum total of all of our memories, and they're never all perfectly integrated. And so, you know, that, that, that combination, that recipe, that's, that's, you know, that's a beautiful thing, but it involves radical acceptance of our imperfections as well as acceptance of our, of our embodiment of spirit in every moment. And so that combination of accepting our vulnerabilities and working with them and, and being patient with them while still being able to keep our eye on the goal, it's very, very difficult. And, it's, and we, most practitioners I've worked with are ashamed that they're not as enlightened as they can imagine themselves <laughs> to be. Good point. And so my message to everyone is when that shame happens, that's fine that you have a standard of being one with God, but refine that value that if I'm doing my best at this interface to grow, that's as good as it gets. Yeah. And that's, 
that's doing God's will. You know, God's smiling on me, struggling at this moment or oh. not struggling, whatever. And I need to feel his smile in my heart. Yep. Hallelujah, brother. Hallelujah, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, as always, at the end of our conversations, I feel all warm and inspired. And uh, I thank you so much, Dr. Keith Witt, for joining us today. And I feel the same way with you, Jeff. <laughs> you say it inspires me and gives me tingles. Cool. Well, thanks, everybody. And check in next time for another installment of The Shrink and the Pundit. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>